There is no I in team. There is no I in team. There is no I in team. I remember being a water boy for a high school football team. My dad coached back in the 1990s, back when I was still watching Ninja Turtles. And the school adopted this slogan on their t-shirts. There is no I in team. Of course, the first time I ever saw this, I was quite puzzled. I thought to myself, well, duh. T-E-A-M. Of course there's no I. I mean, I'm not exactly the spelling bee champion in the fourth grade, but I know how to spell team. Anyone can understand that, that can read. There's no I in team. But then it dawned on me as I was filling up those bottles of water on those hot summer practices, the purpose of that catchy slogan hit me right in the face. I was apparently the only person associated with that football team that didn't understand the subtlety and cleverness of the slogan. It's certainly not a catchy slogan just for sports teams either. It's applicable to virtually every group or organization that is trying to accomplish a common goal together. In the local church, we too must have the same type of group mentality or group identity if we are going to be the church that God has called the church to be, according to the scriptures. Yes, the, the whole of a thing is always made up of individual parts. We never want to speak about things in its entirety and diminish the individuality of people. Any type of organization is made up of individuals, especially even a church, individual members who make up that local church. But friends, when you join a local church like this one, you will find greater significance and greater purpose in your contribution in ministry as you consider yourself in light of the whole. In other words, the church is just not you and Jesus. The church is Jesus' people, his bride. So yes, individually, you go through a process in the membership process. Individually, you're making that decision. But when you join a church, your identity as a Christian expands. Your talents, your service, your contribution is not simply and only about you. It's not even about what tickles your fancy. It's what you most enjoy or what you're best at. It's, it's about thinking of the whole, how you can contribute to the body as a family. As individual Christians who make up this church fellowship here at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, we must see our individual purposes in light of the overall purpose for which God has in the local church. Well, that then begs the question, what is the overall purpose that God has for the local church? I mean, what is the mission? Why are we here? What are we doing every Sunday, every Tuesday night, every Wednesday morning, every Wednesday night? What are we trying to accomplish? What did Jesus instruct his disciples to do until Jesus comes back for his church? 
Well, we read our marching orders in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So very simply put, what is our mission from Jesus? Making disciples of Jesus Christ. Making disciples of Jesus Christ. If we don't get that right, we miss the whole purpose, the whole mission of why the church exists. Now, what does making disciples involve? It involves teaching. It involves preaching. It certainly involves evangelism. It involves prayer. It involves fellowship. It involves sharing. It involves baptism and partaking of the Lord's Supper like we'll do tonight. And it involves things like church planting, starting new churches like this one, or sending and supporting missionaries to places where there is no gospel witness. But the Great Commission also involves followers of Jesus Christ and their character. It involves every follower of Jesus Christ not increasing in their ego, but decreasing. Decreasing in their understanding of I in the light of the team. The team being the local church. Whether that's pastors or deacons or committed church members serving in whatever capacity you are able to, the heart of John the Baptist should be the heart of each one of us. John 3, verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. Humility, integrity, trustworthiness, dependable, gentle, faithful, peacemaking, effective, unifying. These are character traits and these are work ethics that commend the gospel of Jesus Christ. They honor the Lord. And these are also character traits that commend followers of Jesus who are model servants in the local church. Oswald Sanders once said, true greatness, true leadership is achieved not by reducing others to one's service, but in giving oneself in selfless service to them. Tonight, we focus on the concept of selfless service and a godly example as it pertains to church deacons. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, I think that's on page 576 or 577, one or the other. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, kind of as you're turning there, let me give you a quick reminder. Uh, we are in the second of a three-part series on church deacons. Two weeks ago, we began this series on Sunday night in teaching about church deacons, model servants in the local church. What do deacons do? What's their function? What are they 
set apart to accomplish in the local church. So if you weren't here for that talk, make sure you listen to it on the podcast, take down notes, maybe listen to it again afresh, maybe you think more about that so you can ask questions on April 3rd. And tonight, we are now looking at what a deacon must be. The first was function, now we're talking about character. And really in line with character, also efficient service. Efficient service, so character and efficient service. And again, as I've already mentioned, uh, if you have any questions that are not answered in the teachings, because I don't have time to literally answer every question in the sermons, you can drop a question. Don't put your name on it, but you can drop a question. We got pieces of paper and a little shoebox over there, whatever you have about deacons. If I haven't covered it and I don't cover it tonight, make sure you put a question on there. Um, If you don't put a question in the box, that's totally fine too. You can speak to myself or one of the elders in person. You can email us, or you can even ask a question from the floor on April 3rd. So we're just wanting to uh, have open lines of communication. You learn by asking questions. You learn by thinking through things. And I know this is new for our church because we've had elders now for 18 months, and now we're moving on to deacons. So we're seeing how these two different roles uh, dance, if you will, in complementary fashion. Last time, as I said, we studied on what a deacon must do. Tonight, we look at character and effective service in the office of deacon. Please follow with me as I read 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Very simple outline for tonight's talk. Number one, godly character, the non-negotiable qualification of a deacon. Godly character, the non-negotiable qualification of a deacon. Number two, effective service, the blessing of proactive problem solvers. Effective service, the blessing of proactive problem solvers. Number one, godly character, the non-negotiable qualification of a deacon. Here in 1 Timothy 3, we see the qualifications of the two distinct offices in the New Testament, post-apostles, post-prophets. We see elders or pastors or overseers, those are used interchangeably to refer to the same office. That's verses 1 to 7. And then we have deacons, which is verses 8 to 13. Amidst these two offices of the local church, the most obvious difference that we've studied a year ago and we've studied two weeks ago between the, the office of an elder and an office of a deacon It really has to do with function. That's really the most significant thing in the difference, what they are called to do, what they're responsible for. 
Uh, Elders are to manage, oversee, exercise authority, care for, protect, lead, and teach Christ's church. Those are all the different verbs used with regards to elders, pastors, or overseers in the New Testament. But deacons have an office, but it's not an office of leadership, but an office of service. That's a very important distinction there. It's not an office of leadership. It's an office of service. The primary task, as we learned last time together, for the office of a deacon is to assist the elders in serving the needs of the congregation. Let me say that again. The primary task of a deacon is to assist the elders in serving the needs of the congregation. Now, one sentence that I tried to unpack uh, that kind of gives us a fuller definition, so if someone becomes a deacon, this is kind of the top of the paper to help them understand what we think Uh, they are qualified to be and do, is this. A qualified deacon shows a consistent, not perfect, but consistent exemplary pattern of godliness, peacemaking, humility, and efficient service in the body of Christ. A qualified deacon shows a consistent exemplary pattern of godliness, peacemaking, humility, and efficient service in the body of Christ. Uh, Deacons are model servants of the local church. So if a new Christian shows up and they want to be discipled, and they're like, hey, Brother Blake, I want to learn how to be an effective servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. An elder or a member of the church, without any hesitation, should go, you see that brother over there? You see that member over there? Watch them. They are an example of what it means to be a servant. That's what deacons are. They are already exemplifying service, even without the title. They are model servants of the local church. Deacons are exemplary assistants to the elders of the local church. Deacons are happy and helpful problem solvers to meet logistical, fiscal, and physical needs in the ministries of the church. Deacons are ministry mobilizers. That means they facilitate and they recruit other members to help meet needs in the church. That means they're a team player. If you can't work well with others in a team fashion, you're not going to be able to serve as a deacon. There is no I in team. And if a deacon can't work with other people in their specific acts of service, they're actually going to cause disunity and slow down ministry. And friends, that's not a qualified deacon. A deacon is going to help facilitate ministry, not hinder it in the body of Christ. Deacons are peacemaking bodyguards for preserving unity in the local church. Uh, As the larger our church becomes, there is no way every elder is going to know every member in every possible way. The needs are just going to happen, and the first line of defense sometimes is going to be the deacons. Because the deacons are right there in the trenches with the members. And so you need to have members who have a peacemaking disposition between conflicts that arise, complaints that arise. In other words, they got to have tender hearts and some thick skin. 
Elders definitely got to have that. They get bit by sheep and attacked by wolves. But deacons too, because they're in the trenches of ministry and when things are kind of at the last minute and someone calls out and, oh my goodness, we don't have this for this, they've got to be able to be cool and calm so that the body of Christ can continue moving forward. We saw that in Acts 6 last time together, how those seven men with Greek-speaking names helped bring peace and unity to a church that could have had a massive split. Here in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, we see several character traits that are very similar to that of an elder. So the function is different, but what's interesting is the character qualifications sometimes kind of bleed over because godliness and character is important for both the office of an elder and a deacon. Let's look at them together. I'm reading out of the ESV translation, so if you've got a different one, the words might be slightly different, so bear with me. Verse 8, deacons must be dignified. What does that mean? It means they are respectable, honorable. Uh, This is indicating that the person is worthy to imitate and learn from, at least in some tangible way. Uh, They are an example worth learning from. Uh, They are someone that the church feels confident in some ways represents the face of the church. So elders, of of course, because of their role, will have a higher bar of representing the church. But deacons too, because they serve an office, even though it's an office of service, still is representing the church. They are a respectable or dignified example. They're an example in how they understand the gospel how they conduct their life, and how they carry out their service. Look on in verse 8, they also must not be double-tongued. Now, kids, that doesn't mean they've got two tongues. They can't have two tongues coming out. You know, I don't know if anyone has that in here. That's not what Paul's getting at. Uh, This is just really an idiom. It's just a way of basically saying they are sincere and truthful in their speech. In other words, they're not speaking out of both sides of their mouths. They're not chameleons with their speech. They don't change the story, change the conversation, change the facts when they're with one people over the other. Uh, This person lets their yes be yes and their no be no. They are exemplary in their speech. Uh, Verse 8, they are not addicted to much wine not greedy for dishonest gain. This person really shows evidence of self-control in their life. They have self-control first with their bodily appetites. Paul tells Timothy they're not addicted or enslaved to much wine. That that means they're they're definitely not a boozer. (laughs) They're not someone that can't say no to the bottle or the can. Uh, They have self-control and the ability to say no to certain vices that could control someone's behavior. Uh, Also, he says they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, That means they are above reproach in their handling of finances. Uh, They pay their bills. They pay their taxes. Uh, They may have a lot of money or a little money. It doesn't matter if they're poor or rich. Uh, The reality is, is what does their heart want to do with that money? And why do you say, why is that there for a deacon? Well, deacons, especially those who serve in member care, are going to be in the line of fire when we 
think about benevolence in the local church, when we think about caring for people financially, they're going to see the finances, especially if they work with the church treasurer, or if we have a pastor over administration one day, they're going to see what people are giving. They're going to know the ins and outs of things that you need to be above approach to handle. And so they need to show some level of faithfulness and integrity with how they handle their finances. Uh, And again, this is not speaking of how much money they have, uh, but this is speaking primarily of their self-control and their demeanor of contentment. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, This one's kind of funny. It just basically means starting off, they've got to be a Christian. (laughs) Uh, The demon deacons, I know that's the mascot for Wake Forest, but that's a really bad paradigm to have. You don't want demonic deacons. Trust me. You don't want men wearing the hat of deacon that despise their pastor. Deacons hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they also not only believe the gospel, but they love sound doctrine. In other words, they don't have to be able to teach like an elder, but they can't be one of these people in the church that go, well, I'm more of a handyman. I'm more of a doer. I don't get into all that theological stuff. I don't don't get all into these discussions about doctrine and theology. Friends, you want deacons that have spiritually minded theological inclinations. Let me explain why. As an elder, I get tons of questions that can come on all the time about what does the Bible believe about whatever. But there's going to be situations where you've got members in the body that have serious questions about the Bible and questions they heard in a sermon or questions about things they're reading in books. And deacons need to be able to have some way of navigating the questions. So they need to have some ability to study the Bible, know the Bible for themselves, uh, certainly be familiar with our statement of faith. If someone has a question in the church, to even know what the statement of faith says. Again, they're not, deacons are not just doers and they don't think. They're spiritually minded servants. They hold fast to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Drop down to verse 12. Thank you for your patience working through the rain tonight. These will be fun memories as we look back on them one day. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Uh, This qualification is basically verbatim to what an elder must be. A deacon doesn't have to be married. It doesn't say they must be married, but if they are married or have children uh, and or have children, uh, they should exemplify in their home life some level or pattern of peace and order in their home life. Uh, The basic idea here is this. If your ability to manage and serve the people in your home is a total flop, then you're not yet qualified to serve in Christ's church. doesn't mean you can't serve in other ways, but to be elevated to an office in the New Testament, you are setting an example. You are showing others how to first minister to your first ministry. Uh, the, your home is your first church. 
So whether that's for an elder or a deacon, they are shepherding, they are serving the needs of those who are 15 feet from them. That's usually one of the most natural proving grounds or testing grounds for someone to serve in these offices. You'll also notice the qualification of the husband of one wife. It's mentioned both for an elder and a deacon. Uh, This speaks about the commitment and fidelity of the man towards his wife. Uh, He is a one-woman man. Uh, That means he's not known as the flirty guy with other women. He's not actively looking at pornography or texting and emailing inappropriate things to other women. It's obvious to those who know him that he's a man who fulfills his marital vows. Perfectly? No. The best husband he could be? No. But his wife would have no hesitation at all of answering questions about her husband's integrity if asked by an elder or members of the church. One of the things that mark a qualified deacon is that you can look at their families and they can see that he serves them well. He cares for their needs. He's constantly thinking about how they're doing and how he can care for them. Uh, it, It can be very clear here that his job, his hobbies, his church, and even his buddies, they take a back seat to his wife and kids. What does he put first? Is it his home life or is it something else? A qualified deacon, if he's a man who's married and has children, he puts his family first. Another common question that people ask regarding this husband of one wife uh, is, is this disqualifying a man who has been divorced? Well, the issue at hand is a little more complex than an off and on switch or a yes or no. Uh, the emphasis on the qualifications, keep in mind, are on the present tense. This is speaking about the man's present character and stewardships, not about who he was 45 years ago or 35 years ago. That doesn't mean we don't consider the past. It doesn't mean we don't talk about the past. It doesn't mean that there might be some things in the past that could have a blemish on the guy's life to prohibit him from the office. I can tell you quite a few scenarios of that. But if we're asking about divorce specifically, we need to ask further questions. When was the divorce? What was the cause of the divorce? Um, When did it occur? What, What fruit or faithfulness has been shown over a long period of time with his present wife? That's what is most present in these texts. Certainly a question to ask. It's, it's helpful for elders to hit pause, to think, to pray, to consider. Uh, but I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. He's speaking about the wife he's currently married to. Is he exemplifying commitment and faithfulness to its marriage vows? Again, it's a case-by-case situation. And I would just say this, uh, just to encourage everyone in here. Regardless if you ever have a title in a church, elder, or deacon, you can still disciple and serve. Nothing prohibits you from making disciples and nothing prohibits you from serving. So for whatever reason, if you don't feel like presently you measure up to these offices or you don't even aspire or desire to do these things, you and I can still aspire to the character and the godliness of an elder and deacon. So I just want to say that as a kind of a press, uh, a pressure release there 
that regardless if you ever wear the title or assume an office, regardless of the situation, you have freedom in Christ to serve and disciple because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just as a word of encouragement. Now, if you look at verse 11, I did intentionally skip over it. I'm going to have to do some more work on this maybe on April 3rd. But in verse 11, you'll see the most unclear part of these qualifications. So depending on your translation, King James, New King James, NASB, CSB, man, the rain's getting weird. Um, NIV, ESV, whatever translation you got, they're divided on this one. And there's a reason why. So I'll read the ESV for you again. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Depending on your English translation, like the ESV, it might say their wives. So raise your hand if you've got their wives in your translation. All right, now everybody with their NASB can probably raise their hand. Well, who has the women? All right. Well, you can see why. You might say, well, Blake, is that a contradiction? I mean, why do we have different words in our New Testament? Well, it's because the Greek is ambiguous. The translators had to make a decision. That's why at the very bottom you see in the footnotes, it's italicized. The Greek word is gynaikos. It can mean women or it can mean wife or woman or wife. It's used both ways in different contexts. So the Greek word alone doesn't settle the issue. It doesn't really solve whether or not it's their wives or women deacons. So I'm going to encourage you to read the articles that I've put in the e-newsletter that go way deeper into the technicalities of this topic so that you can ask questions to me on the third. But to save you some time, maybe you don't have the time to read those articles, Here's where the debate and the divide happens in Christian churches. Can women serve in the office of deacon? It cannot be settled based simply on the Greek. It can't even be settled on whether Phoebe was a deacon in Romans 16. It is settled on this one question. Do deacons possess authority in the local church? Do deacons possess authority in the local church? If they do, then women are forbidden from serving in the office of deacon because of 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. What did we read last time? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. But I hope, at least I sought to walk us through the text of Scripture, in last week's or last time's sermon, we discovered when we look at all the evidence in the Bible, not church traditions, not the way we were raised, but according to the Bible, we see that deacons assist the elders and serve the congregation. If those lines are clear and deacons deacon and elders elders, then there is nothing in the diaconate that would forbid a woman, biblically speaking, from serving as a deacon. There is nothing uniquely masculine in the role of a deacon in that sense. Diakonos is used of men and women in the New Testament. Now, Christians can disagree on this. Christians that I love, pastors that I esteem and love, and there is a great divide. It's not something to divide your church over. That's not a hill worth dying on. 
All I'm trying to do is lead our church to think as biblically as possible about things that I think have been assumed and probably poorly taught for long periods of time to help us think about if you keep those things separate and clear, the Bible does seem to support that. But again, you have to ask the question, what are deacons called to do? It's not an office of leadership. It's an office of service in the local church. Nevertheless, whether it's women deacons or the wives of male deacons, verse 11 makes it clear these women are godly, faithful, Christ-like. That's, that's what's true of an elder. That's what's true of a deacon. Number two, effective service. Effective service, the blessing of proactive problem solvers. In verse 10 and in verse 13, Paul makes it clear that deacons must show an exemplary pattern of service before the body of Christ and have been properly examined, typically by the elders, before they are put in the office of deacon. The Bible commends us to be slow in the laying on of hands. That's both for elders and for deacons. In other words, members who are qualified to be a deacon are already deaconing. They're already showing the godliness, showing that effectual or effective service without the title. That's what you should look for in an elder too. They're already eldering. They're already shepherding, even without the title. That's how you know if someone is qualified for that title or that role. Verse 10, they have proven themselves blameless. That means they've been observed, they've been tested, they've been evaluated. Verse 13, they serve well and are granted great confidence when they stand before the Lord on the last day. That really kind of then begs this question, why should deacons be skilled at serving? Why can't they just be godly? Why can't they just be humble? Why do they have to actually be good at serving? I mean, why can't we just kind of get away with Taco Bell and not have the service of Chick-fil-A? Why do we have to have the best, the cream of the crop? Well, deacons are problem solvers, not problem makers. They're problem solvers, not problem makers. My dad once told me a story that has stayed with me for a long time. When he was in his mid-30s, we moved to Savannah, Georgia, got a new job. He was the director of finances and administration over a new private school. The headmaster there, Mr. Riley, was probably in his late 70s, a few years from retirement. My dad tells me these stories is when he walked into his office, Mr. Riley's office, and came to him with all these problems that teachers were bringing him. After my dad was done speaking, that very respectable, strong, upper 70s principal looked at my dad in the eye and said, young man, don't you ever come in my office again in giving me problems. You come here with solutions. That's why I hired you. I don't need problems. I need answers. This is the last time you will do that. Now, friends, I realize a deacon is not a paid service. But deacons should have that same mentality. They don't want to bring the elders' problems. They want to bring the elders' solutions. If the air goes out, the sound goes out, 
uh, tornadoes are going all over the place. I mean, I'm here in rain. David's getting us ready. You know, they are already four steps ahead of the elders. They don't make any major decisions beyond the elders. They're not going faster than the elders. They're not competing with the elders. But when the elders go, hey, we, we need to do this. And they go, hey, listen, I've done the research. I know how much it's going to cost. Here's three different options. I can tell you my advice of what I think we should do, but I'll leave it to you brothers. That is a blessing to my heart. That is a blessing to the elders. We already have enough that we are committed and overseeing in the life of the church. And a deacon that's a blessing to their elders are problem solvers. They're researching, they're looking ahead, they're thinking about effective and efficient ways that we can do ministry that the elders don't want to spend two hours thinking about. We need to think about shepherding that troubling marriage. We need to think about teaching sound doctrine. We need to think about membership interviews and church discipline and church planting and raising up pastors and getting more interns. We need to think about those things. All those other things are important. And that's why deacons are there to assist to make our life easier. Again, not everyone can do everything all the time. We have to have a division of labor, right? And there are hundreds of scenarios that could come up. That's why Acts chapter 6, this proto-deacon example, it seems to be a good example to look at from time to time. Setting apart qualified deacons to carry out some of the tasks so the elders can stay focused on their primary ministry of preaching and teaching and the ministry of prayer. At the end of the day, friends, why is godliness and why is effective service required for the office of a deacon? Why must they be godly and good at what they do in their serving? Two reasons. Number one, the unity of the church is at stake. Not any one person can do everything. If one person's spinning a bunch of plates, eventually those plates are going to fall. Deacons come alongside and say, elders, let us take those plates off your shoulders so that you can focus on the primary task. The needs are met, the congregation is built up, and the gospel advances. And number two, and this one I want to encourage all of us, regardless if you ever serve as a deacon or not, the witness of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving world and the community of faith is at stake. I conclude this high and lofty calling of what a deacon is to exemplify by Tim Keller. Notice how Tim Keller points deacons to the perfect deacon. He writes, First of all, Jesus washed feet despite his impending death. Jesus was to have the wrath of God poured out on him. He was feeling the tremendous weight of that even at the supper. When we are hurting with a load of care on our backs, do we look around and notice that people's feet need to be washed? Do we look for little ways to serve? No. We are usually absorbed in our troubles, and we want people to take care of us. A real servant does not say, when I get my life together, when I get over my blues, when I get my schedule in order, then I will start to minister. Perhaps you are hurting, 
And you may even be angry because no one is noticing. But where would you be if Jesus had your attitude? Second, Jesus served despite the unworthiness of the disciples. Notice John's reminder that Jesus knew the betrayer was present. Jesus saw them all. One betrayer, one denier, all forsakers. When he needed them most, they would leave him. One of those sets of feet was dirty and sore from an errand that arranged for his torture and death. What did Jesus do? He washed those feet. Friends, that is the example our Lord has set. That is the example of a deacon. and That is the example for every follower of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are excited that our church is thinking biblically and carefully about these things, and yet at the end of the day, we just want to be like Jesus. Regardless if we have a title or an office or not, we just want to be faithful. We want to be useful. There is no I in team. Lord, we want to see our purpose in light of the grander purpose, and that is making disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray now as we come to the table to remember what Christ has done for us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our unity and cause us to look to Jesus evermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.